0: I want you to know that if you are a first-time guest or uh, maybe you've been coming around for a while and uh, still trying to figure out uh, your faith or, or about the Oaks, um, we're so glad that you're here. If you haven't received a guest gift bag from us, I would love to give one of those to you on the table in the back before you leave today. I'd love the opportunity to meet you. I hope you feel at home here at the Oaks because we're really glad that you're here. Um, Now, Drew mentioned earlier that uh, there is a booklet in your seat about the Roots Initiative. If you were at our member meeting uh, a couple weeks back, then you know that we are starting something that is called the Roots Initiative. And so I wanted to take uh, a little bit more of uh, an extended introduction to uh, the time before we get into the sermon text to just talk about the Roots Initiative and and our goal in it. I'm really excited about what God is doing in and through our church, and uh, this time is, is perhaps the best way to, uh, to begin our time thinking through the next month or so, and what we, we believe God is calling us to do as a church family. Now, uh, our hope with the Roots Initiative is that each person that calls the Oaks Church home will grow deeper roots in the gospel. So uh, what are we praying that God does? Well, I pray that as a church community and as individuals, God grows deeper roots in our hearts as we commit our lives to Him. Uh, Our secondary goal is that through this initiative, we will be able to uh, plant roots in the city of Cincinnati by finishing the renovation uh, that is still required on the Oaks Church building, uh, the OCB, so that we can anchor ourselves in the community where God has placed us and where we're called. Now, uh, we have a primary and a secondary goal. So as I said, our primary goal is that 100% of the people that call the Oaks Church home, so that, that is, if that is you, that you would begin thinking and praying, what is my next step of obedience? Uh, our goal is that 100% of people who call the Oaks Church home would say, I want to grow deeper in my walk with the Lord, and for some of you that may mean going from the crowd of the room into the community of the church. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I want to go through starting point class. I want to learn more about what it means to be involved in the Oaks, to be discipled as a member of the church. For others, that, that might mean getting involved in a missional community group or committing to a serve team. Uh, for others of you, maybe you've just kind of been peeking over the fence of Christianity or kicking the tires of Christianity, and this is the time where you say, you know what, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And planting roots deeper in the gospel might simply mean giving your life to Christ and choosing to follow Him. For others, it may look like giving sacrificially for the very first time. Uh, It may look like committing to stay in Cincinnati after college. Uh, You're graduating this upcoming semester, and you say, you know what? The first place that I'm going to look for a job is right here in the city of Cincinnati, because I want to be a a part of what God is doing through this church for the next five to ten years. Uh, Maybe you're saying, you know, I've served in a key role, but I feel like God's calling me into leadership of a group, of a ministry. So, So I don't know exactly how God might be impressing this call, this next step of obedience to plant deeper roots in the gospel. But here's what we know. That healthy Christians grow and growing Christians change. So I firmly believe that as you begin to ponder and pray through what God might be calling you to in regards to planting deep roots, that there will be an obvious and clear next step. We did something similar in 2020, and I was so encouraged as I began to look through the commitment cards from 2020, reading the names and the different things that people said, I believe that this is how I plant deeper roots in the gospel through this initiative. First, Eric Reichwein. He had just started coming to the Oaks, and then he said, I want to attend a starting point class and explore becoming a member of this church, becoming a member of a church for the first time. Now, if you know Eric, you know that he now leads one of our missional community groups and is is a huge part of who the Oaks is today. But three years ago, his next step was, I want to go to a membership class. Another one is Grace Annapal. Now, Grace, on her card three years ago, wrote, My next step is getting baptized and becoming a member of the Oaks Church. Well, Grace is now on staff with us. Grace is, uh, to see what God has done in Grace's life with this step of obedience is nothing short of amazing. Another one uh, is Taylor Singleton, who now you know as Taylor Woody, and she wrote, Becoming more involved in the Oaks so I can experience sharing the gospel with others and making disciples in this church community. You know what Caleb do, or you know what Taylor does now? Well, now, Caleb and Taylor, they lead our college ministry together. Uh, for the sake of time, I, I, don't, I have so many of these that I want to go through. Uh, the lines said, we want to get more committed to serving in the Oaks Church, and now Sarah is uh, part of our personnel team. Brandon is the deacon over our setup and tear down ministry. What I'm saying is, if you take this prayerfully, seriously, I think that you will be amazed at what God can do over the next three, five, ten years in the trajectory of your life. If you prayerfully consider how could God be calling me to personally plant deeper roots in the gospel through the Roots Initiative, I think that you will be amazed at what God will do in your life. And so on November 5th, it will be Commitment Sunday, and and you will write on that card how you believe that God is personally calling you to take a deeper step in discipleship. And we get to celebrate that together and see what God does. That's our primary goal. Our secondary goal is that we would raise the money that is needed to complete the renovations on the Oaks Church building. Uh, right now, we have the audacious goal of raising one hundred to $150,000 in one-time gifts before the end of the year. But I believe that through God's provision, that is more than possible. Now, I want you to know that because of your faithful generosity and how God has already provided for the Oaks, we were able to make the down payment on this building. We were able to begin renovations and not feel squeezed by it at all. Uh, the total renovation cost is about $750,000 total before we are able to fully get into the building. But, but hear this, through your generous giving, through your sacrificial commitment to give to our church through partnership giving and other churches around the country that are excited about what God is doing in Cincinnati through the wise management of our financial stewardship team, we have already what we need to cover 80% of the renovation cost of this building. So the Roots Initiative is really us saying, all right, guys, I see the finish line for us to be able to get this thing done, so let's do it. Like, let's finish this thing out and raise the last 20% so that we can... Have ourselves in, in a space where we can do greater ministry to our city and to reach the world around us, I think we can close the gap and so here's what I'm asking is that over the next month you would prayerfully consider giving the largest donation that you have ever given to any ministry organization so for some of you that might be ten dollars for others it might be ten thousand I dollars don't, I don't know what God perhaps is calling you to. But on November 5th, we're going to come together. We're going to commit and say, this is what God has called us to. This is the next chapter of the life of the Oaks, and we are excited to be a part of it, following God in his mission, so that what we do now might change the lives of people in an eternal way, people that we haven't even met yet. Maybe you're wondering, well, why now? Consider what this year has looked like, for us at the Oaks, we're pushing the limits of the rec center. If you were to walk through the hallways right now and peek into all of the rooms where our children are at, you would know, man, we, we're ready to multiply some kids' classrooms. Our Oaks students need more room, and what God is doing there is amazing. We want to have a consistent ministry presence that's not limited to a, a place for a few hours on a Sunday morning, but to be able to do ministry in our city throughout the week as well. We're facing certain obstacles that uh, perhaps have only been emphasized by the current growth that we are experiencing at our church. Uh, So not only do we believe that a permanent space will solve some of the issues of limitation that we are currently experiencing, we think that it will also open up the door for a lot of opportunities moving forward to serve and to reach our city. So yes, we need a place to consistently gather on Sunday mornings, but we also want a place to serve our city throughout the week. Now, if if you'll follow me here, and just using my sanctified imagination, I want you to picture our brick building on Montgomery Road for a second. I want you to picture that building, and I want you to see an affordable biblical counseling center for people in our church and for people who currently don't have a relationship with Christ. I want you to look at that building and see a hub for community engagement where we're able to host preschool graduations and city council meetings, and people look at that church on that street and say, this is a lighthouse for this community. I want you to think about the future generations. Not just your children, but your children's children growing to know Christ within those hallways and classrooms. New legacies beginning through first-generation Christians that are right now sitting in this room. I picture that auditorium as a place that will become sacred to us. Not because the church is a building. Don't get me wrong. The church is not a building. But that will be the place that the church celebrates baptisms of people who have received new life in Christ. That will be the place that we celebrate the baptisms of people who have found new life in Christ and are committed to building a marriage around Him. It will be the place that the children that we prayed for are dedicated and parents are commissioned before our church body, and that will be the place that we as a church family will often tearfully celebrate the race finished, the good fight that was fought by brothers and sisters that have gone home to be with Jesus but that we will one day see again in heaven. You see, a a permanent building isn't just a building, it's a strategic part of our vision to bring restoration through the gospel to our city and the world. I want you to envision this building as a way to increase our ministry, what God is already doing within the Oaks Church, so that we can impact the world around us as we increase what God has called us to. Think for a moment about whenever you add logs to a campfire. And what happens? The moment that you add those logs to a campfire, it increases the warmth of the flame and the light that that fire emits. Well, in the same way, investing here right now in a permanent facility will enable us to increase our ministry to church members, to missions partners, and those that have yet to believe. And I don't know about you, but I consider what God is doing in our church, and I believe that God is bringing us into a unique moment of history in the life of our church, and I don't say this lightly. I believe that we have a weighty privilege and responsibility to steward this moment well. Our church in the past year has grown by 30%. That's not lost on me. Uh, We have seen God call 11 members of our church since we began into full-time vocational ministry either as a pastor or a missionary or a biblical counselor. We currently have 35 people leading a missional community group in some sort of capacity. We have been blessed with a multitude of children biologically, but also first-generation Christians in our community. God is doing great things. And so here's, here's my challenge It is to live in such a way in this moment that future generations would look upon us and praise God that we were willing to take risky steps of faith to provide stability for the days to come. Because in some ways, I look around this room, and I think to where we were seven years ago, and I think, God, you have given us an opportunity to plant roots in a strategic neighborhood six minutes away. And I feel as if— it's almost like getting to plant the oaks again with a core team now of not 15 people in a living room but 250 people gathered together saying God our yes is on the table give us the question and we'll do it. So as we enter this new chapter I want you to know I'm at peace and I think you should be too. God's got this. I'm content with where God has us, I want you to know that. And at the same time, I don't wanna grow too comfortable. I'm I'm averse to being stagnant in our faith and to just be like, well, things are going good, let's just chill. I wanna be known for courageous faith. So let me be the first to tell you that this initiative is going to stretch you. It already has me. There've been times that I'm like, maybe we we just don't have to do this because I know that whatever I'm calling you to, I feel that weight even more or at least as equal. But the roots initiative is a way to keep the mission of God in front of us. We don't want to slip into maintenance mode. We're driven by the glory of God. If you look on the back of that booklet, you'll see that quote from Isaiah 61 and it says that the oaks of righteousness are planted that God may be glorified. And the only thing driving us here is the glory of God. So remember that is our aim, that we would bring restoration through the gospel to this city and the world. And this building is just a tool that will enable us to do that all the more. And while all of this sounds exciting, and trust me, it is exciting, we recognize that apart from the sovereign and mighty hand of God, that this will not be a reality. The task ahead of us is great, yes, but we believe firmly that God is greater. So here are our three commitments as a church body, that we would pray boldly, that we would live missionally, and that we would give sacrificially. And I'm excited to see what God does over the next month. We're going to talk more about what this means. But as we begin this initiative, as we set out on this journey with arms linked and ready to see what God does, know that I'm praying for you, and I'm excited that we're joining together to pray boldly, to live missionally, and to give sacrificially. I want to show you a short video that uh, summarizes some of what I've said, but also casts vision for the future, and then we'll dive into Romans 13. There's also audio. I mean, I could do the voiceover live. It is me. (laughs) It's the only weird thing. It's like, guys, we're just talking. In the spring of 2016, I was gripped by the words of Isaiah 61. It is a prophecy about how Jesus would come to bring good news to the spiritually poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to set the captive free. And as I kept reading, I was struck by the words that describe God's people, that they will be planted as oaks of righteousness, that he may be glorified, and that broken cities may be restored. With that passage in mind, we planted our lives in the city of Cincinnati, and what God has done since the summer of 2016 could only be attributed to His grace. From our little living room on Ward Street, to 20th Century Theater, to John P. Parker Elementary, to Christ the King Church, and now the Madisonville Rec Center, God has been faithful to bring restoration in us and through us. Lives have been eternally changed. Former strangers have become a church family, and the fingerprints of God have been forever impressed upon the city we call home. Again and again, the story of the Oaks is steps of faith met with the kindness, faithfulness, and power of God. I believe that the last six years of what God has done in and through our church is just the beginning. And now is one of those moments that I believe that God is calling us to take a step of faith Believing that God's past faithfulness to us is the greatest indicator of his future faithfulness. God has provided our church family with a home where we will gather for worship, introduce our friends and family to Jesus, serve our city, train the next generation of disciples, and equip missionaries to reach the world. So Oaks Church, let's link arms and move forward to plant roots in this city. Let's pray boldly, live missionally, and sacrifice financially so that more people would experience restoration through the gospel in the city of Cincinnati and the world. Yeah, uh, I'm excited about the days ahead, and I can 100% honestly say I wouldn't want to do it with anybody else. Alright, Romans 13. Go ahead and find God's Word. We're going to be in Romans 13. We're going to finish out this chapter today, and as you find Romans 13, uh, I want to give you a little bit of church history, but trust me, it's, it's worth staying with me here. So many of you perhaps know of Augustine, one of the church fathers. Uh, We know Augustine because of his ability to write just deep theological truths in a way that would impact the church for ages, his ability to refute heresies, and how he protected the church in many ways. And while you might be familiar with some of these things, a lot of people are less familiar with his story of conversion and how he came to faith in Christ. You see, Augustine was born from a family where his mother, Monica, was a Christian, and yet his father was a polytheistic pagan man. And growing up, Augustine really didn't have much interest in Christianity. Honestly, he was more interested in the pleasures of the world and, you know, kind of dabbled in his mother's faith, but never personally made it his own. If you read the confessions of St. Augustine, you know that uh, his, his childhood was marked by thievery just for the fun of it. Uh, and as he grew older, he was known for partying and just kind of living however he wanted. Uh, one sin that Augustine notably struggled with was the sin of sexual immorality. And, and while he often was known for pursuing the pleasures of the world, he, he never let it get in the way of his academics. He was very smart, he was a scholar. In many ways, uh, so much so that he became a professor of rhetoric in Milan. He moved to Rome against his mother's wishes, and while he was there, he heard of this preacher that was was really elegant. And as one who studied rhetoric. He became interested in this man named Ambrose. And so he began going and, and just listening to his sermons, but uh, simply for the ability to kind of dissect his argument and try to understand, you know, the, the way that he was pleading his case and, and what was going on there. But he couldn't separate what he was hearing from the way that it impacted his heart. It, it, it wasn't enough to just kind of make it an intellectual exercise for him. And so he began to wrestle with these truths. And One day, he was walking around in his garden, drifting kind of in and out of prayer, and then just kind of wrestling with his own thoughts. And it was as he heard a voice, he said, that was just saying, take up and read, take up and read. He he said it was almost like a a sing-song voice. Well, because he was curious about what Ambrose was preaching, he actually had some of Paul's letters sitting on a table next to his home, and so he walks over. He picks up the letters and just begins to read, take up and read, take up and read. And so he picks up and reads, and he flips to Romans 13. He reads verses 13 through 14, and he said that verse 14 caught him, gripped his heart whenever it said, "...but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." And he said that the moment that he read those words, it was as if God was speaking directly to him. He writes, no further would I read, nor needed I. For instantly, at the end of that sentence, it was by a light, as it were, of serenity, now infused into my heart, that in that moment, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. You see, for years, Augustine had this dualistic worldview that was held by many Greeks during that time, that that the physical was unimportant, that you could almost compartmentalize your spiritual life and the way that you viewed God or how you, you know, interpreted the Scriptures from the way that you actually lived in your actions and behavior. But in this moment, he realized that his personal relationship with Christ could not be compartmentalized, but actually came with personal responsibilities to Christ. And he found that not to be burdensome or limiting or restrictive, but freeing in seeing that he was now being called into a relationship with the Creator that he was made to worship, and his life was finally being lived in the way that God had designed it to be lived, because he's, he had experienced Christ's love. In Augustine's Confessions, he writes a line that perhaps you know because he is quite famous for it. He says, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. For years, he simultaneously loved his sin but felt enslaved by it. There was a restlessness, a craving of the heart that he sought to satisfy in any way that he could. But in that Moment, he was finally able to put into words what he had always wrestled with. To put on the Lord. To seek no provision for the flesh, but to find life in Christ. And so it's my aim that the exact same words that had that profound impact on Augustine would speak to you and I. We find ourselves living in this present age attention between Christ's first coming and His second coming, and perhaps you're sitting here wondering, what do I do now? How then shall we live? Are we those that should just kind of sit around looking at each day pass upon our calendar or staring at our watch just hoping that the clouds will roll back and Christ will come? How then should we live? And Romans 13 is going to continue to flesh that out for us teaching us that the love of God causes us to live with the present reign and future return of Christ in mind. The love of God causes us to live with Christ's present reign. He's on the throne. He is our Lord, to live with His present reign and the future return of Christ in mind. Now, with that being said, let's read Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. God's Word says this, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ." and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. God, would you speak through your word? Lord, may we listen and be attentive to how the Spirit would lead. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our time together today, and trust me, I know that I took quite a bit of time to intro the Roots initiative, so I'll be mindful of that as we spend our time going through this text. But I want to look at two guiding principles of Christian practice. Two guiding principles of Christian practice. We will find the first in verses 8 through 10, and it is this, the law of love, living with love for others. Now, in Romans 12, 9 through 21, you have Paul detailing the way that we act in love toward those in the church community and those outside of the church community. And in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, he's going to explain how that love for one another fulfills the law of God. Now, whenever we get to verse 8, Paul says, "Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, maybe you see that and you're like, well, what is he saying here? Is Paul condemning student loans or car payments? Like, we owe no one anything. Um, that's not what he's saying here. So, you know, if this is like a proof text for Dave Ramsey fans, I'm sorry. Like, that's just not where Paul is going here. He, he's making a, a parallel, isn't he? Because what did he talk about in verses 1 through 8? He, he's saying because you live in Rome and because you are under the rule of the government, you should pay your taxes to, to the government. So if this is how you are to live in Rome, paying your taxes, then this is how you are to live in Christ, loving others as Christ has loved you. All right? So, so he's creating a parallel here, it's simply saying, if you have a responsibility to pay your taxes to those that you live within their kingdom, then with Christ as King, love others that are in your kingdom. It is a joyful obligation. There's not this sense of undesired burden whenever we get our tax bill or whenever we know that we owe someone money. No, this is a a privilege that we are now able to do because we have been loved by Christ and now seek to love others. Now, Paul explains here in verse 8 that to love each other is to fulfill the law of God. Now, he, he summarizes really everything that he's said about relating to other people in this one command, to love one another. He's summarizing the law. And we see Jesus do the exact same thing, don't we? I had Kyle read the passage from Mark 12 where the scribe comes up to Jesus and he asks, hey, what is the most important commandment, and what does Jesus do? He summarizes the law in two commands. That you would love the Lord your God, and that you would love your neighbor. Now, as as the typical Israelite would have thought about the law, they perhaps would have thought about the entire first five books of our Bible, but perhaps most notably the, the Ten Commandments. And the first Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. It's a, it's, they're vertical commands. If you look at the last six commandments, they all relate to the horizontal, our relationship with other people. And what Christ does whenever he's asked that question is he summarizes the entirety of the law into two commands, saying you should love the Lord your God and you should love your neighbor. Well, here Paul is summarizing the entire law in loving your neighbor. Now, he does something similar in Galatians 6, and he's able to do that because true love for one another that is genuine, as he said in chapter 12, verse 9, a true love that is genuine, it's not self-serving, it's not manipulative, it's not, you know, transactional, can only come from a heart that is set on first loving God. And so he's able to say here, if you love one another, you fulfill the law of God. Now, perhaps you're, you're wondering, okay, but isn't the Christian free from Keeping the law to earn our righteousness before God, like, what's going on here? Why would, why would Paul even be concerned about fulfilling the law if his, he's already said that the law now has no bearing upon your righteous standing with God? Well, if you were to ask that question, I would say that's a, that's a question worth asking. I mean, remember what Paul said in Romans 7, verses 4 through 6. He said, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code." We serve in the new way of the Spirit. He's saying, now, if if you're a Christian, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit to obey the Lord. But do you know what that love looks like? It looks like obedience to the law. There's no contradiction here. They're, They're in complete alignment with one another. The fruit of the Spirit, think about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is compatible, not contradictory to the moral norms of the law. So if you're obeying God's Word, if you're seeking to live under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, then you don't have to worry about, well, what, what laws am I keeping over here from the Old Testament or not, or I, I can ignore those. No, you'll, you'll live in line. With God's desires and what He has commanded in His Word. Because if the Holy Spirit is producing that kind of fruit in you, will you steal? No. Will you commit adultery? No. Will you seek to murder your brother or sister or to be angry with him? No. Not because you're under the law, but you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit and you have a new desire to obey it. We often say at the Oaks that a train runs best on its tracks. If you've been around for a couple of years, you've heard that countless times. But, but it's helpful, isn't it, to see that in the same way that if, if you were to, you know, go up to a train conductor, say, man, this, this train, you've got this beautiful piece of, of machinery here. Set it free. Take it off the tracks. Go off-roading. He would say, you are out of your mind. Why? Because you know what happens when a train is derailed? It's destroyed. And in the same way, we look at God's commands and His law and the teachings of Jesus and all that Paul institutes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as what is good for the Christian life. And you say, that's where human flourishing is. Freedom, true freedom is lived within the limits of God's good design. You wouldn't go home and take your goldfish and throw it onto the carpet and say, you're free, buddy. Go wherever you want. The thing would die. Why? Because because life is best lived in line with God's commands. Driven. Yes, the, the engine that fuels it is the Holy Spirit. Salvation that we have received, that we are fully justified and our sins are no longer counted against us. And yet... We live in line with what God has called us to. So there is no contradiction between our life lived in the Holy Spirit and the law of God given through His Word. Uh, Perhaps um, you can think about marriage if you're married and your commitment to keep those vows. Now, is that commitment one that you keep because you said it and it's a promise that you made and now you just got to do it? Or is it fueled by love to say in sickness and in health for better or for worse, till death do us part? Well, it's both, isn't it? It's a covenant commitment. It's a promise that now fuels that love. And there are times that your love for that person and from that person fuel the desire to keep the commitments that you made. And I say that to draw this parallel, that Christian obedience and one another love in the Christian life is not the result of us being burdened by the law, but rather because we are the beloved of the Lord. I say, because God has loved me whenever I was dead in my sin, had nothing to offer Him at the very least, because God has loved me in that way, I can sacrificially love others at expense to myself And that covenant love fuels our obedience to God's commands. It's probably worth noting that even when God gives the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, where are they? Are they still in Egypt? Are, are, is he saying, okay, you know, I know that this is backbreaking labor and you're in a really bad spot, but if you keep these Ten Commandments for the next year, I will set you free. That's not what he said. He sends plagues. He brings them out. He says, I'm taking you to the promised land. You are no longer under the slavery. The Red Sea is behind him. And then he says, you are mine. And you know how my children live? They live just like this. Because you belong to me. You see, that's how we view commands in Scripture. So when we look at this and see that we are called to, feel, uh, to love others as a fulfillment of the law, we see that God's commands are good for us. Because we are His. In verse 9, we reach the conclusion that love is not an emotion, but that love is an action. He says, love one another. And I think sometimes we can, we can stop by saying, like, yeah, I, I love other people. But then he starts listing commands, doesn't he? He says, you can, you can see love. There are actions associated with Love. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. This is why Jesus in John 14, 21 says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Do you love Jesus? How did Jesus just describe those who love him? It's, it's those who keep his commandments that love him. And, and perhaps you're, you're hearing this and you're saying, hmm church is a legalistic church, right? He's talking about commands an awful lot. Now, don't miss this. I, I, this is, okay, and let me be completely honest here. This has been a fault of my own theology and in, in my growth in Christianity and understanding of the gospel. So, I'm not picking on you. I'm picking on me. But don't miss this. There is no contradiction between exerting great effort to obey God and freely accepting the grace of God in Christ. There is no contradiction between exerting great effort to obey God's commands and the free gift of salvation that is offered through the grace of Christ. It isn't legalism to obey God. It is legalism to think that your acceptance before God is dependent upon your personal performance and not the work of Christ. Okay? So, so it's not legalism to seek to obey God's commands. It's legalism if you think that your righteous standing before God is dependent upon your personal performance and not the finished works of Christ. But hard-fought obedience isn't legalism. It's a display of love for God and love for others. And perhaps that will help get you unstuck if you've kind of been circling that cul-de-sac of obedience and, and understanding God's grace like, like I have so many times in my Christianity. Now, Paul gives four commands, and I don't have a whole lot of time to spend on them here, so we'll just run through them. He says you shall not commit adultery. He's saying that you should live out marital faithfulness. There should be an exclusivity in your intimacy, and that's, that's emotional, that's spiritual, that's physical if you're married. This also means that if you are single, that you are, you are restricting that sort of intimacy to the spouse that perhaps one day God might give you. The second command is that you shall not murder. And Jesus goes on to say that if you, if you hate your neighbor, that is that's similar to murder. So don't let the sun go down on your anger. As Paul would say in Ephesians 4. You shall not steal. Why shouldn't we steal? Because we know a God who provides everything that we need, so we don't need to take from others. And finally, you shouldn't covet. That means you shouldn't become jealous of what someone else has, and that can be a matter of stuff that you want or a status that, a status that you wish that you held. Uh, I think we often wish that we were in another person's place, and marketing today often works by planting seeds of discontentment in your heart and saying, if you had this, you would be more efficient. If you had this, you would be more comfortable. If you had this, you'd be more productive. And as you begin to kind of like mold that around in your mind, you begin to think, yeah, I really do need that thing. I don't think I can live without it. But the sin of coveting is so dangerous because it is living in a way that is wanting what God has not chosen to give you. And we believe that God has given us everything that we need. Now it probably goes without saying that Paul brings up all of these commands because if we are committing any of these sins, we are simultaneously sinning against God, but also not loving one another. Which is why he says that all of these are summed up in this word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, many of, of the commands are saying, Don't do this. And he just went through several of those. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't covet. But the Christian life is not just about what you don't do, it's about what you do. And so he says on the positive side of things, you are to love one another. It's not just avoiding certain actions, but seeking to bless your neighbor. He's quoting from Leviticus 19.18 here. And whenever Jesus in Luke 10 was teaching this same command to love your neighbor the lawyer came up and he said, well, who is my neighbor? He wanted to limit the the language of neighbor so that whoever he had to love was just kind of comfortable. And you know what Jesus told him after that? He told the story of the Good Samaritan. He says, well, there was this Jewish man who was walking, uh, you know, kind of through the wilderness, and these robbers came, and they stole everything he had, they beat him up, they left him for dead, and you know what? A priest came by, didn't help him. A Levite came by, didn't help him. And then finally, there was a Samaritan. Now, if you knew the the racial tension between the Samaritans and the Jews, then you would have known that even the mention of a Samaritan walking along this path would have started to make uh, this lawyer's blood boil. And he says, and you know what the Samaritan did? He knelt down, and he began to nurse his wounds. And then he set him on, on his donkey and took him into the city, and then he said, you know what? I want to make sure this man gets completely well. Anything, any charge that he accrues during his stay here, I want you to charge that on my account at great personal cost to myself. And then knowing that this man is just internally wrestling, Jesus said, now now, who, who do you think was the, was the greatest neighbor to that Jewish man? that was beaten and left on the wayside. And the man answered in Luke 10, 37, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. That's your neighbor. Love everyone in this way. And the desire to do this, to love your fellow brother and sister in Christ, to love those who do not yet know Christ in this way, must first come from realizing that we have been loved by Christ in this way. Think more deeply about the story of the Good Samaritan. This is not just a parable that Jesus is telling. It's a picture of our own salvation, that we were the ones left beaten on the verge of death, helpless and hopeless, Beaten by sin. Beaten by our corrupt, sinful nature. Beaten by the flesh. Beaten by the pleasures of the world and the temptation that we have often indulged. Beaten and left for dead. And help could be sought from no one but Christ who would take on His flesh. That He would enter our story. That He, through His cross would say I will bring them back to life at great personal cost to myself. May their sin be charged to my account, 2 Corinthians 5.21 that they may be well and have eternal life. That story about defining our neighbor, neighbor is not just a matter of understanding who the good Samaritan is but how great our Savior is. And in this way, by fixing our eyes on Christ, we understand the law of love fulfilled by Christ, and now we aim to live with love for one another. Which brings us to our second point. The Lordship of Christ. This second Christian practice is putting on Christ to prepare for His return. Verse 11 says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come For you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul is trying to create a sense of urgency for the Christian. He's saying, Christian, the return of Christ is closer now than it has ever been. Don't be groggy in your pursuit of the Lord. Don't be drowsy in your desire to flee from sin. Wake up. Because Christ is returning soon. He continues these metaphors in verse 12, saying the night is far gone. This is uh, just kind of the, the present age of the world and practicing sinfulness. He's saying the night is far gone. Don't live like this. The day is at hand. That's the return of Christ. He's saying, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He knows that the Roman Christians, just as well as you and I, are always at risk of relapse. He knows the lifestyle that many of them came from. He knows the sins that still wage war within our heart. And so he's saying, cast off the works of darkness. Don't return to them. Put on the armor of light, because you live life on a battlefield. To prepare for the day of Christ's return, because it is quickly approaching He uses similar language to Romans 12, 2, saying, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light to live in this way. Paul often uses this language of putting off and putting on. You'll see it in almost each of his letters. Uh, I, I was recently listening to a biblical counselor, and he explained the putting off and putting on in this way. He said, imagine that You've just finished a brutal workout, right? You've sweat completely through your clothes. And what, what is the first thing that you do whenever you get home? You grab a towel, you turn the shower on, and you're like, I have got to get clean, right? So, so you remove the dirty clothes, you step into the shower, you experience cleansing, and the moment that you step out, you put clean clothes on. Now, imagine in the Christian life, if you were to mix that order up, or perhaps even worse, not do one of those steps. Imagine that you get home and you're like, you know what, I can't even wait to jump in the shower. I'm just going straight in, right? So you've still got like your Under Armour tank top on and your gym shorts and you're just like, shh, sudsing up. And then you get out of the shower, you're like, oh, look at the time, you know? You start drying off your, your shorts, tank top, and then you just put on your jeans right over. Like what, like, what is going to happen? Well, you're, you're not going to be clean. You're going to be wet all day. You're going to be uncomfortable we got to take off these works of darkness when we are cleansed by Christ and now to put on these works of righteousness to the armor of light now imagine if imagine if you you know get home and you get out of the shower and then you're like all right I'm clean just head off to work Well, that's that's not good. You're gonna get fired. You're gonna get arrested. Like like something's gonna happen. You're you're completely indecent because you haven't put on these these clean clothes that are part of your new, new wardrobe. Now, as as silly as this might sound, I feel like perhaps this is a good moment for personal reflection. If you've been cleansed by Christ, are there still some dirty clothes that you are wearing? under the works of righteousness that Christ has placed upon you? I think perhaps some of you need to have a, a conversation with a dear friend today and say, look, I've slipped back into some dirty clothes and they're, they they got a hold on me. I think, I think others of you need to consider what aspects of the Christian life have been purchased for you that are part of your new wardrobe and you just kind of said... Not yet. Not now. It's a busy season. I got a lot going on. Not not now. Time in the word, I don't know. Love for neighbor, giving, serving. I I just don't know. What Paul is saying here is cast cast off the darkness. You've been cleansed by Christ to put on the armor of light. Live in this way. He describes the Christian life like a walk. And he says, walk in the daytime, verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. And I want you to see here that the walk is descriptive of the Christian life. And there's a difference between walking down a path of darkness and stumbling as you're walking in the light. And perhaps it's helpful to just to think, am I I walking... In a pattern that is worldly and not of the Lord, or or am I seeking to follow Christ and I occasionally stumble? As Proverbs twenty-four, sixteen says, the righteous man falls seven times but rises again. Yes, you will often stumble, but it is not okay to stay there. Christ lifts you, Christ is with you, follow him, that you would walk properly as in the daylight. Now he, he lists some sins here. These are works of darkness. These largely are secret sins. And he's saying, don't remain passive in this. Don't say, I just struggle with this. There's nothing that I can do. I mean, look again at that word walk. I don't know about you, but I've never walked anywhere that I didn't want to be. And so he's saying, hey, yes, I, I'm not downplaying the deception of sin, the allure of sin. But, but he's saying, Christian, you're, don't, don't walk this way. You've been redeemed from this. And perhaps it's helpful to look again at the life of Augustine. There's a story that is told. After his conversion, he's walking in in the streets of Rome. This woman sees him from a distance. And she calls out and she says, Augustine. And he locks eyes with her but keeps walking. She says, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. She draws closer to him and he says, but it is no longer I. But it is no longer I. And brother, sister, your sins are calling to you in the streets. The sins of bitterness, the sins of lust, the sins of discontentment, of judgmentalness, of anger. And they're saying, It's I, come be with me. Do you remember all the memories that we shared? Do you remember the life that we had together? Do you remember those moments that you cherished it? It's I. It's I, come, be with me. But the Christian is able to look at that temptation and say, but it is no longer I because I am a new creation in Christ Jesus because I have been purchased by His blood and I no longer need to wander these streets because I have made my home in Christ and I am fully satisfied in Him. That's why Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be clothed in Him, in His righteousness, in His works, in His deeds. May we be known for those who are with Jesus, like Jesus, and daily becoming more like Him, to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I mean, don't indulge in, in sinful desires. Don't daydream about them. Don't premeditate them. Don't seek to justify them. Just say, I don't want anything to do with the flesh. Let me starve my sin so that I may feed my desire for Jesus. We could say more, but we will certainly not say less than this, that it is the love of God for us that causes us to live in a way with His present reign in mind and to be prepared for His future return. Three action steps as we take communion. That you would receive or remember this love of God for you. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I am am the guy dead in the wilderness without Christ. I was dead without Christ. Would you receive the love of Christ in this moment? Would you remember the love of Christ in this moment? In response to that, would you commit to love for others? It takes hard work. It takes effort to obey these commands. But would you say, by the power of the Holy Spirit within me, I want to commit to actually living this thing out not just kind of in an abstract way, but in actual, tangible, concrete ways. And finally, to submit to the Lordship of Christ and say, you know, there's some stuff I need to cast off. I've been cleansed by Christ. There's some stuff I need to put on. And I'm going to talk to somebody about it. I'm going to write in my journal. I want to look back at this day a year from now and say, that was it. That's when Christ made this real to me. Let's pray.